in this, this session, we're going to finish at 8.30, so I'll, I'll speak for a bit, then we'll have a, hopefully a brief time for Q&A before we, we head out. There'll be more tomorrow, so some of the questions you have tonight may be things that we're going to be addressing tomorrow. But I want this session to be thinking about how we, within the, the life of the local church, can, can be people of grace and truth in these conversations. So I want to frame this session by looking at a promise of Jesus that is not as well known as it should be in uh, Mark chapter 10. So I'm going to read this to you. We've just had the account of the rich young ruler um, who looked like he was the kind of... He looked like he'd been cast by Hollywood to be the the great disciple. He just looked like he was great discipleship material. Um, He wasn't willing to leave behind the things Jesus was calling him to leave behind. And so he goes away from this encounter sad. And the disciples looking on feel the, the, the sadness of that too. We reading on, reading this, we feel something of that sadness and it doesn't work out. And then the, apostle, uh, the, the disciple Peter, who was not the most emotionally intelligent disciple, <laughs> this very kind of poignant, heavy, tragic moment decides this is the time to say in verse 28... He says to Jesus, see, we've left everything and followed you. So in other words, Peter's saying, I know know it didn't work out with that guy, and that's a shame, but you've got got us. Lucky you to have us on board. We we are your A-team disciples, so, you know, all is going to be okay, Jesus. You're very welcome. Um, it's interesting, Mark says Peter began to say this to Jesus and then Jesus cuts him off, which I think is telling. Um, Jesus responds to Peter in verse 29 by saying, truly I say to you, which I think is Jesus' polite way of saying, Peter, shut up. <laughs> truly I say to you, there is no one who has left houses or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time. Houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come, eternal life. Uh, several years ago, I was speaking at my, my old church back in England, uh, speaking at a Christmas service that we were running and a guy came to the, to the service for the first time. He worked in a nearby building, saw that we were doing a Christmas thing and thought he'd come along um, after work. And he came up to me afterwards and he said, and I love this, it made me chuckle. He said, I, I would love to find out a bit more about what it means to follow Jesus. Would it be okay if we met up to talk about that? And I'm thinking, yeah. You know, I spent most of my time on committee meetings talking about what kind of lawnmower the church should or shouldn't buy. So actually talking to someone about being a follower of Jesus, that sounds like the kind of thing I was supposed to be doing. So yes, that would be fine. I think, I think we can allow that. So we met up a few days later. We went out for lunch, and I asked him to tell me his story. Um, and he, he kindly did, and he shared something of his, his life and, and where he'd been at and where he was at now. And a significant part of his, his journey was that he was now a gay man in a long-term relationship, had been in this relationship for 10, 15 plus years. And uh, he said, listen, before we kind of go any further, I, I just need to know what does Jesus think about my relationship? And that's the kind of the deal breaker for me. So I just need to know what he thinks on that before I even entertain thinking about following him. 
And I remember thinking, okay, that's not where I would normally want to begin in kind of introducing someone to the Christian faith, but it's where he wants to begin. I I want to honour that and answer his question. So I tried to walk him through some of the things that that Jesus says about our sexuality and and what that means and what it points to and and how that shows us the gospel and, and all of those sorts of things. And he listened very, very patiently, very kindly, very graciously. But as I kind of finished setting out the stall, he, he said to me, listen, my relationship is the best thing that has ever happened to me in my life. What could possibly be worth giving that up for? And I remember sitting there thinking, that's a good question. And she turned to him and said, that's, that's a really good question. And I remember praying, Lord, that's a really good question. <laughs> but the help here would be good. This is the text that, that came to me. And he wasn't at that stage ready to, to receive Christ, but we continued to, to keep in touch and meet up for, for a number of years afterwards. Jesus is, is showing us a few things in this little section. He's showing us again... People will leave things to follow him. That's, that's basic discipleship. You turn to Jesus, that does involve turning from other things. Again, he doesn't bury that in the small print. He doesn't try and hide that. We do have to leave things behind to follow Jesus. Jesus assumes, moreover, that the most costly things to leave will be familial, will be relational. He says, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now. So that the harder things to leave will be those sorts of things. And Jesus is showing us then there will be some people for whom following Jesus will involve leaving their entire kin. Leaving their entire community, leaving their entire kind of home. Thankfully, that is not the case for all of us. It's not the case for most of us. We don't, have to, we don't have to leave all of those things to be a follower of Jesus, but there will be people from certain cultural backgrounds, certain religious backgrounds, where if you are going to be a follower of Jesus, you are not going to be able to go back home and be received by your family again. But notice, even in the face of, of that kind of cost, Jesus still says following him is worth it. Even looking at that kind of cost, Jesus doesn't say, yep, you may have to leave behind brothers and sisters and fathers and mothers and homes and lands and children, and it's just going to stink. But don't worry, because at the end you get heaven. No, Jesus is showing us that even in this life, it is going to be worth it to follow him. We will receive back from Jesus far more than we ever have to leave behind in order to follow him. It's never a bad deal to follow Jesus. And again, he casts it in relational and familial terms. There is no one who's left all of those things who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time, houses. He's not promising us a property portfolio, that would be nice. He is saying, if you, if you come to me, there will be homes where you feel you belong. There will be doors that you know you can knock on and there will be a welcome on the other side of those doors. 
brothers and sisters, mothers, children, lands. There's going to be a multi-generational family Jesus is going to give us. There are going to be people ahead of us in the faith that we will begin to see as, as spiritual parents. There'll be people around us and alongside us that we will, we will feel as though we are a brother or a sister to. There will be people coming up behind us in the faith that we will begin to feel like we're a bit of a spiritual parent to. Lands, Jesus is saying there will be such a sense of belonging among his people that the very geography will feel like this is where I belong. And yes, whether you ordered it or not, you get a side order of persecutions as well. That's, that's part of the bundle. And in the age to come, eternal life. So Jesus is saying, listen, you may, have to, you may have to leave a huge amount that is costly. Jesus is not saying, but don't worry, I'm going I'm to match it and then just add a little bit. No, Jesus is saying, I will give you a hundredfold in comparison with what you leave behind, even in this, in this life. Um, if I can put it this way, this is, this is the real prosperity gospel. He's not promising us money. He's not promising us wealth. He's not promising us a life without adversity. He gives us persecutions here. He's not saying we're never going to get sick. But he is promising us family and community. So here's my, my question for you. I want you to imagine, a, this is a little thought experiment for you. I don't know your churches well enough to, to know what the answer to this is. This is not loaded. I want you to imagine someone comes to faith and joins your church. And imagine for the sake of this thought experiment, this person has come to faith from, from an LGBT background. Imagine for the sake of argument, in this instance, this is not always the case, it may not even often be the case, but just imagine in this particular scenario, they're not going to be welcomed back into the community from which they came if they're a Christian. But here they are, and they're now at your church on Sunday morning. According to Jesus, that person should be able to say that as a result of being in your church, that they now have far more family in their life than they ever had before. They should be able to say that they have far more community in their life than they ever had before, far more intimacy in their life than they ever had before. So my, my question to you is, do you think in such a scenario that person would realistically be able to say that? Is yours the kind of church where actually if someone does parachute in and they really don't have anyone else in their life, they are going to find an extraordinarily deep level of community and friendship and family. They are not going to be lonely. Now some of us might be thinking, well, I mean, we're a strong church in lots of ways, lots of things we're great at, but maybe not that tight-knit a community and family. I'm not sure in my heart of hearts I could honestly say that. I think they would say that. That may well be the honest answer. If that's the case, we're making Jesus out to be a liar. Some of us may be thinking, well, do you know what? My, my church is, it's kind of a mess. But we are a family, a pretty 
dysfunctional family, perhaps, but genuinely a family. Lots of things that we're hopeless at, but we, we really do pull together. If, if that's the honest answer, then our church is living proof that following Jesus is worth it. That church is the answer to my lunchtime friend's question. What could possibly be worth giving up my relationship for? The church should be the answer to that. So how can we be a church that embodies that 100-fold return of Jesus? I want to suggest there are, there are three things that need to characterize us. Uh, the first is clarity. Uh, we do need to understand what the Bible teaches on these things. We do need to understand what Jesus is calling us to in these, these parts of our lives. Um, being ambiguous, ducking the issue, being confused is not pastorally helping anyone. Uh, we can't duck the issue. It's tempting to. If you're a pastor, you, you get enough cranky emails on a Monday morning already. You know if you start to speak about this kind of stuff, your, your inbox will blow up. But we have to teach on this topic because our culture is really good at discipling when it comes to this part of life. And the message we are hearing on repeat is that if you don't have a special romantic someone in your life, you're, you're not really living. And you're wasting your life. So we need to be teaching on this issue. We need to be giving people clarity. Um, Paul could say in Acts chapter 20, after his, his stint at Ephesus, he could say that actually... He had taught the whole counsel of God and therefore he had a clear conscience. If, if God has spoken on these issues, we, we have to, to teach on them. We have to be clear on them. Uh, secondly, we need to have compassion. Because again, Matthew 5 shows us we are all in the same boat here. The particulars may be very different from person to person. Your particular forms of sexual attraction, your particular temptations, your particular struggles may be totally different to the person next to you. But nevertheless, we do have in common that we are fallen sexual creatures, that we're broken in this area of life, and therefore none of us can ultimately look down on anybody else. Again, someone else's struggle might be something I have never even remotely imagined having an issue with. It may be something I really can't relate to But I can still say to that person, I, I don't know what it's like to, to struggle with that, but I know what it's like to be sexually broken. And so the, the particulars may be different, but actually we're, we're more like each other than we are different from each other. And so no one is in a position to, to feel as though they need to feel despair, that they are, their struggle makes them beyond the reach of God's grace. And no one has any grounds for feeling smug and thinking, well, I don't struggle with what that person struggles with. <laughs> no, each of us has enough sexual sin in our, our hearts that we have no reason to feel smug. 
I was talking to a group of pastors in the UK a few years ago, and they'd asked me to talk about how we share the good news of Jesus with our gay friends. It's a great, great thing to think through. And at one point, one of the, the pastors blurted out in the middle of the workshop, he said, how can you talk to a gay person without being disgusted by them? So, that, okay, you get a few points for honesty. <laughs> and many more removed for complete lack of, of tact. Lots of things I could have said to him, but I, I said to him, by being more disgusted by your own sin, brother. In 1 Timothy chapter 1, Paul describes himself as the worst of all sinners. He says, he was a trustworthy saying, full of, worthy of full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. Paul doesn't say, of whom I was the worst, and then I got my life cleaned up, and now I'm squeaky clean and, and great. No, Paul, the, the esteemed and, and senior apostle who at that very moment, is writing the Bible, by the way, <laughs> that guy can say, oh, I'm the worst of sinners here. Now, I don't think Paul had done a survey of the entire known Christian world to find out how much sin was in each other's lives, to find out who was the, the, the kind of the worst sinner. And the results all came back, and Paul kind of looks it all up and goes, oh, oops, it's me. <laughs> had to be someone, turns out it was me. There you go. I think what Paul is showing us is that when you realise how much mess is in your own heart, it's very hard to believe that there's someone else out there who's more messed up than you are. And so when you hear of someone else's struggle, whatever it is, even if it's something you've never remotely been tempted by, you, you feel a sense of compassion. You think, yeah, we're made of the same stuff here. And if God can, if God can show his love to me, if God can rescue me, you're going to be fine. Because again, we're all in the same boat. Jesus levels the playing field. And that's the thing, sin taints every area of life. In no area of life are we everything we should be. There's no area of life where any of us can say to Jesus, do you know what, I, I actually don't need you for this bit. This, this part of life, I've actually got completely sorted out. I, I mean, thanks for the offer, but this part's actually completely fine. Now, in every area of life, we need Jesus. Uh, my favourite dessert in the UK is, is, we call it apple crumble. I think it's approximate to what you call apple crisp, but better. Just being honest. Um, and I remember going around to, to someone's house once for, for lunch after church, and they said, hey, we've made you apple crumble. And I was thinking, yes, all is well with the world. And then they said, but we, we've done something different with it. And I remember smiling outwardly and inwardly thinking, why? Why would you do that? And I can't remember what they'd added to it, plutonium perhaps from the, from the flavour. Whatever it was, it tasted disgusting. And here's the thing, it didn't matter whether I was, I was taking a bit from this end of the bowl or that end of the bowl or from the bottom layer or from the top layer, from the, the, the apple bit or the, the crumbly bit. All of it was, was just ruined. <laughs> I'm, I'm a delight to have round, by the way. If you want to <laughs> host me at any time, I'm available. And, and sin, sin is like that. It doesn't matter which bit of our lives we're, we're putting the spoon in, sin has spoiled it. 
And so again, we, we feel that sense of, we're in this thing together. And so we, we will naturally feel that we have compassion. And so we want to make these issues safe to talk about. We want any kind of, of sinner, any kind of sexual sinner to feel as though they can come into our church and feel safe confessing whatever it is that they wrestle with because ultimately we're in the same boat. My own pastor back in, in Nashville often says it, it's safer to confess sins in a bar in Nashville than it is in many of our churches. Uh, dear Ray Ortland, who said those outrageous things about me um, earlier. He's coming in May. I need, I need to get my own back on him for saying that. Um, one of the things Ray often says is when it, when it comes to church, you can be known, you can be impressive, but you can't be both. So choose this coming Sunday which it's going to be for you. You can be impressive, you can look like a someone who's really got their Christianity sorted out and, and well-polished. You can give someone the, the kind of Instagrammable side of your Christianity. Or you can be actually known. And we need to make these things safe to talk about. We need to show the people in our churches that issues like same-sex attraction are not just issues out there in the culture, they're issues within the, the people of God. And that it, it's okay to share about these things. Uh, it was several years after becoming a Christian before I really felt like I could tell another believer that this was something I was wrestling with. I'd heard too many Christians making gay jokes. I'd heard too many pastors saying quite demeaning things about gay people to make me feel as though this would ever be anything I could even talk about. But uh, the church I, I ended up uh, attending for a number of years, that the pastor was beginning a sermon series in, in Romans. We got to the second half of Romans 1, where Paul talks about issues of homosexuality. And the pastor just took a few moments in the sermon to say, listen, this is going to be an issue for, for a number of us in the building. And if, if this is an issue for you, I want you to know you're not on your own. And I hope you'll feel able to, to share with us and, and let us encourage you and come alongside you. And that was the first time in seven years of being a Christian where I, I felt like it was going to be okay for me to say this was something I struggled with. Uh, we need to make it safe to talk about. We need to show that actually we're all ultimately in the same boat. And then the third thing, clarity, compassion, we, we must be providing healthy community. Because when it comes back to that promise of Jesus in Mark chapter 10, Jesus is saying you will receive in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands. It's easy for us to listen to that promise and go, oh, man, isn't Jesus just, he's just great. Isn't that an amazing thing for Jesus to promise? And it is, and he is. But here's the thing. One of the things that makes this an unusual promise of Jesus is that it depends on us to fulfill it. Because it turns out we are the fathers and mothers, the brothers and sisters and the sons and daughters that Jesus is promising. That's us. So when Jesus is promising someone houses, he's promising them our homes. So let me ask you this question. Who, 
Who in your church, who else in your church that doesn't have your last name needs to have a front door key to your house? Who needs to know that they're welcome, not just once every three months, pre-arranged, pre-checked for a kind of limited period of time just to have a catch-up, but who needs to know they can just walk into your house, they're so welcome, they can just let themselves in. They don't even have to call ahead. We're the, the sons and daughters. Who, who is there above us in the faith that we can let become a spiritual parent to us? Who is there around us that we need to presume, actually, they know more about this following Jesus stuff. They've been at this for longer than I have. I'm going to need their wisdom. Let's be a community that actually esteems age because we esteem wisdom. Who can we be walking through life with? Uh, it means that we need, to, we need to cultivate friendships in our church. And in the Bible, friendship is a far more serious thing than it is in our culture. Um, in the Bible, a friend is someone who knows your soul. Um, Jesus says in John 15, verse 15, it's one of those verses that I, I genuinely wouldn't believe if it wasn't for the fact that it really is in the Bible. But Jesus says to his disciples, no longer do I call you servants, but I call you friends. Jesus calls his followers friends. And he tells us why. He says, no longer do I call you servants, for a servant does not know what his master is doing. Okay, if you're the servant, there's stuff you don't have clearance on. You don't need to know. You just do what you're told. You don't need to ask why. Jesus says, but I've called you friends because, and whatever Jesus says next is going to show us what Jesus believes friendship to consist of. Jesus says, I've called you friends for all that I have heard from my Father, I have made known to you. Jesus defines friendship in terms of disclosure. Jesus says, all of that I've heard from the Father, I've made known to you all of it. That makes us friends. I've spilled the beans to you. So we're friends now. I've let you in on what's really going on. I've, I've been honest with you. And we need that in our churches. The book of Proverbs shows us you can't be wise in God's world without friends like that. And it's very easy for those of us who are married to think, yeah, yeah, friendship, that's great. The single people need that. But all of us need that. I know marriages that have imploded because they didn't have friends. They'd got it into their heads that they were meant to be the fulfillment of every emotional and relational need the other person had. And they couldn't do it. All of us need friendship. By Jesus' definition of friendship, how many friends do you really have? Who knows what's really going on in your life? Who is it who knows all the worst stuff about you and still sticks around? Uh, we need to promote friendship. It turns out you, you don't need to have sex to have a full life, you, you do need to be known. 
And our culture has so conflated sex and intimacy that it, it doesn't really conceive of any intimacy that isn't ultimately about sex. But the Bible shows us you can be having a lot of sex and not be experiencing intimacy. I think people like King David and King Solomon are examples of that. I think when David says to Jonathan, your love means more to me than that of a woman, it's not because David is wrestling with, with same-sex attraction. It's because David has had such a screwed-up view of women. This, this deep, rich friendship with her, he has with Jonathan feels like real intimacy for the first time in his life. You can have lots of sex and not be experiencing intimacy, and you can have lots of intimacy that is nothing to do with sex. We see this in the life of Jesus. He did life with the twelve Within the 12, he, he particularly gave time to the three. And, and in John's gospel, we see the disciple whom Jesus loved, a very close and intimate friendship. Or you think about the apostle Paul. Paul was not the lone ranger. If you read Romans chapter 16, it, it's Paul kind of doing all the hellos and thank yous. It feels a bit like the end credits to the book of Romans. So we're tempted to do the kind of skip ahead thing and, you know, let's just do the Netflix thing and skip ahead to the first episode of, of 1 Corinthians. But if you read through Romans 16, you realize just how deeply embedded Paul was in relationship. And he often uses family language to describe it. He'll talk about someone being his mother in the Lord. People, you know, he's, he's using that kind of language of closeness. Which reminds us, as we begin to finish, that, that church really is meant to be family. In 1 Timothy 5, Paul says to, to Timothy, treat older men as fathers, older women as mothers, younger men as brothers, and younger women as sisters with absolute purity. He doesn't say treat older men as, you know, distant uncles, or younger men as second cousins. He's not saying treat them as, as family, but in a kind of distant family way. He's saying treat them as family, but as, as close family. That's what we're meant to be. When the Bible talks about us being brothers and sisters, that's not an honorary thing. That's meant to be real. Uh, John Stott once wrote that if we're not actually treating ourselves as family within the people of God, we shouldn't be using the language of family at all. We have no business using that as a word to describe our church family unless we're actually living it. Um, in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 15, Paul describes the local church in two particular ways. He uses two images. He says the church is the, is the pillar and the foundation or the buttress of the truth. And there's a sense in which there's a sense in which it's the other way around, that the, the truth is the foundation of the church. If you take the truth away, the church falls down. But there's also a sense, Paul is saying, in which the church is the, the pillar and foundation of the truth because the church is meant to be the outlet for truth in God's world. The, truth is meant, the church is meant to be the means by which the truth is disseminated. The church holds up and holds forth the church. Sorry, the, the church holds forth the truth to a world that desperately needs to hear it. He also describes the church as God's household, God's family. And those two aspects of, of local church life are very much bound up together. For the church to be an effective pillar of the truth, it needs to be an effective family. 
If we're going to see traction with our, with our attempts at, at sharing the truth with the community and, and the city around us, actually we need to be a real family to one another. That is what is going to give the truth credibility and plausibility. That is part of what's going to show the truth to really be true. And so we need to provide community. Which isn't the kind of thing where you write to your pastor and say, we need 15% more community in our church. Every single one of us needs to be being something of that community to somebody else. Uh, the, the wonderful writer, uh, Rebecca McLaughlin Muntz, uh, said that loneliness should be the one form of suffering that no Christianity, sorry, no Christian ever experiences. So how can we embody that hundredfold uh, promise of Jesus? Well, we need clarity. We do need to know what we think on these things. If you're still unsure of what the Bible teaches, I hope this weekend will help with that. There are other materials that can, can help us with that too. We need to be places of compassion where, where people have the, the safety and the space and the time to, to truly be honest about their sins and to find the rest and refuge that Jesus has come to provide us. And we need to be providing community. If we're asking people to live by the Bible sexual ethic and we're not providing healthy intimacy, we're putting a burden on people they're not designed to bear. We need to have clarity and compassion and community. And if we do, that is how we're going to start winning people to Christ. Our friends in the gay community need to see that there's, there's a form of relational depth and love and community within the people of God that you cannot find anywhere else. Houston needs to see that. And to the extent that it does, even if people still really don't like what we believe, if they see that kind of relational richness following in the wake of the gospel, it will, it will make the gospel irresistible. Well, may God strengthen us to help us to live in such a way.